Hi everyone and welcome to the show in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. Boy, am I excited for tonight's guest. Here we go. Not many have driven a race car better than he. He can make a bad car competitive and a competitive car victorious. He won the Indianapolis 500, the Daytona 500, the Formula One World Championship and the Pikes Peak Hill Climb. He won the IndyCar National Championship four times and was a three-time winner at Sebring. He won races in sports cars, sprint cars and stock cars, on ovals, road courses, drag strips, on dirt and on the pavement. He won at virtually every level of motorsport since he arrived in America from his native Italy at the age of 15. He is a racing icon, considered to be by many the greatest race car driver in the history of the sport. You've no idea how excited I am to welcome on the podcast the legend Mario Andretti. Cue the music. Well, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. As you heard from the intro, there's a lot of excitement coming from my side today. Let's hope that I live up to the expectation of Mario. But thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today, Mario. I genuinely really appreciate it. And the guests are really excited to hear what you've got to say today. My pleasure, Spencer. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you've, uh, you've obviously been interviewed a million times and so uh, and asked some very familiar questions. But maybe you can just take me back to understanding a little bit about being an Italian and having a connection with motor racing in the way that Italians do, um, with obviously Ferrari and that tractor company, Lamborghini and whatnot, when you were younger. Can you remember when you were young looking at sports cars or racing cars and having a big curiosity towards them? Was, 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 was these types of brands big in your mind back then? Oh, absolutely. By all means. Uh, in fact, uh, this is where it all started for me. Um, at a very young age, I lived in Italy the first 15 years of my life. So, And I would say I was just even just a teenager when the interest and uh, the, the, the fact that the I, I just uh, became fascinated, um, you know, with the sport because, as you mentioned, Formula One was just coming into its own, um, and uh, Italy was so involved with again uh, the brands such as Ferrari, Maserati, and Alfa Romeo winning the first championship there with, with Nino Farina, and then. 53-54, you have um, Bertascari, Ferrari, world champion. Here again, it's not that I had the, uh, the luxury, if you will, to look at you know, the real sports cars or anything like that, but I remember going to the, to the movies because they would have an intermission to let all the smoke out. And, um, and during, after the intermission, they would have some uh, videos of uh, sports and, and news happening around the world. And of course, uh, leading those uh, the videos was always uh, motor racing. And that fascinated me as a child because of course there was no TV then. And uh, to see live uh, videos of cars, uh, uh, racing cars in Argentina and somewhere around the world um, and with our own champions out there. So Alberto Scotti became really my idol. And that's when it all started. Uh, my twin brother Aldo and I uh, happened to be in, uh, 
to, to see the 54 Grand Prix in Monza. And that was the first time that we saw the real thing, you know, the real race cars. And then a year later, we, um, we went to uh, near Florence uh, the, to the Futa Pass and watched uh, the Mille Miglia. We, you know, where here we, get, we see the Mercedes with uh, Sterling Moss, you know, and uh, uh, Dennis Jenkinson, you know, was his passenger, which was very unusual even at the time. And so, you know, things like that. So, and then right after that, we immigrated to the United States, uh, you know, in, in 1955. So, but basically the mold was cast at that point, uh, as far as us having a direction, a dream really, because that's all that could have been at the time, a dream of becoming racing drivers. Um, just to fast forward, I mean, that two years after we arrived here in the United States, uh, Aldo and I, and, and uh, we assembled four other engineers, buddies, <laughs> and we started building our own race car so we could race locally. And, and in fact, uh, two years later, my career started in 1959, and I never looked back. You know, I was never interrupted until 1994 uh, when I officially... Tell, tell me about that first car that you built then. What type of a car was it? What was it for racing on? Well, it was uh, to race locally on a half a mile dirt track, if, if they, what they have here. And um, it was a Hudson, a 1948 Hudson Hornet, a special model, which was very popular at that time uh, uh, and winning in NASCAR, especially on short tracks. And uh, we followed that idea because uh, obviously we didn't know anything else. But uh, uh, among our group, like I say, you always have the the geek, the one that knows everything. And uh, and he took us in that direction, well, rightfully so. And uh, and then we bought we bought information for one of the official NASCAR teams that was actually going out of business because uh, Hudson was was uh, was quitting NASCAR. And, um, and so there were some other things available. There were actually engines available to buy, racing engines. And we bought that as well. So we armed ourselves uh, better than I could have ever done, you know, certainly not by, by myself. But uh, we had the right group together. And, um, and we, you know, we started out, we had a very auspicious beginning because uh, uh, one car, two drivers, and uh, we did a toss. Aldo won the toss. I was actually happy about that. And he won the qualifying heat and he won the feature race the first time out, which was unbelievable for me even to watch and see this happening. But um, as you can see, it couldn't have been better, you know, for us. And then the following weekend, obviously the task for me was to, to, to repeat that, which um, fortunately I, I did. And we went on. We had a very successful season. Uh, you know, we did all the things, crashing and, and winning and, and all of that. And, and, um, and so that was it. That's, that's how it all started for us. Now, when back in those days, was a crash because of probably not much insurance around in those days and stuff like that. Was a crash on the circuit like big issue because of how much money it was going to cost and how long it would take to repair the vehicle? Yes and no, you know, okay, you would crash. And I know one time I even actually during the earlier week practice, um, I, I flipped the car and, and the car was all bent, but it was not mechanically really bruised. So we raced it the rest of the season 
with the car somewhat, you know, not looking so so well, and uh, and still won some races like that. But uh, some of the crashes were such that uh, you know you you stay up all night, and after school we were just uh, working until three, four in the morning every every morning to get the car ready for the next weekend races because we used to race like two, sometimes three times uh, on a weekend, starting on Thursday night. And, uh, and so kept us busy. And tell me about your mum. Was she always worried about you because you're out there doing something dangerous? You and your brother together, probably a bit competitive too. Obviously, we didn't dare even tell my dad that, uh, that we were racing because, um, you know, he, believe it or not, um, the, the only defense that we had actually was the language barrier because uh, he did not learn the, the language as quickly as we did. And uh, even while, you know, we were winning, of course, there was uh, some publicity in the papers and so forth. And uh, and he was, um, you know, being congratulated by his boss at work and he had no idea what the guy was saying. You know, so that was, uh, again, for us. But uh, it, it's not that my dad, um, he obviously was not a, a racing fan, but um, he was, it was a typical reaction from a parent where uh, in those days, you, you know, too often the news were negative about, uh, you know, uh, fatalities and so on and so forth. So in his own mind, he figured, you boys are crazy because just even... Even right after, you know, he, he knew that we went to Monza watch Alberto Scari. Alberto Scari was killed in Monza testing. And so there's a big news, you know, okay, your big idol, you know, is gone. And on the way over in, on the Conte Bianca Mano, when we, you know, on the ship, when, when we came over, there was every day, there was a, a news manifest, you know, about things going on around the world. And that's, uh, that was the weekend of um, the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1955, where they had a dreadful accident of uh, Pierre Levesque uh, in a grandstand killing 85 spectators. And so you had all this negative news about the sport. And then said, okay, you kids want to go, you know, go there. As says, he used to say, you know, they bring back more body bags than trophies, you know, from the races. And he wasn't totally wrong in, in some respects, you know, but the love and passion that we had, Aldo and I had, was not going to be deterred under any circumstances. I mean, uh, I didn't want to de- defy my dad's or wishes or anything, but uh, I always felt he does not understand, which he didn't, you know, he did not understand what that meant to us, you know, and uh, because I keep saying, I always said, I I don't remember ever having a plan B, like what if this doesn't work? I just did not accept that notion, you know. So, um, you know, I could say clearly that I was driven. I was totally driven about trying to um, to achieve and do what, uh, you know, just to become a racing driver. Now, because you've raced across so many disciplines, it's you're commonly described as the greatest racing driver of all time. When you hear that, what does that sound like to you? Does it make you feel a bit strange or do you think, no, that's probably right? What, how do you think? Here again, I mean, the word driven, you know, was uh, what I think uh, resonates here in so many ways because uh, I was just never happy to just uh, stay where I was, if you will, in the sense that uh, uh, our sport is rich 
of uh, different uh, disciplines, you know, at the top level. And uh, I was curious, you know, and and uh, if you're somewhat successful in one discipline, somehow some opportunities come up, like in sports prototypes, for instance, and then stock cars and uh, one thing or another. So if the opportunities come up with, especially with the, the right teams, then boom, I was there, you know, and, uh, and just the fact that uh, I derived so much satisfaction ultimately, I mean, this is later on, to be able not to just experience and race something that's out of your, uh, say, specialty, but to be able to win there. And that's where, you know, that was everything for me. Uh, Career-wise, there was no time where I could say I'm bored with what I'm doing because there was always a new challenge. And um, that was important for me. And and in fact, I feel that uh, I derive... um, you know, I, I think it opened my my dimension as far as uh, the uh, learning certain skills that apply both ways. I try and use that, you know, in my own mind to justify all the work because, you know, I married very young. You know, we had a, at the end and I had a family uh, at a very young age. I was 21 years old. And, and uh, so you have uh, some of those responsibilities. But uh, I had just a wonderful lady on my side that... Uh, she was not necessarily a race fan or anything like that, but she supported me. She understood what was driving me. And, um, and you know, there was never this thing of uh, making me feel guilty. Okay, you're racing, say, IndyCars or whatever, and now you have a weekend off coming up. I said, oh, well, no, actually, I'm going to race somewhere else. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> But it was never, you know, anything like, oh, what about us? You know, can we do a picnic or something like that, like normal people do? And uh, but again, all of that helped me tremendously. And only realized later on in life, you know, when you start reflecting on things, how important she was for me, you know, to just uh, make me allow me to do my thing. And I understood later on how selfish I was quite honestly because I just tried to satisfy myself in that sense and yet I needed that help I needed if I would have had those um, you know domestic obstacles or something uh, it would have been a cloud I think uh, in my head and uh, and she never gave me that so she was what I needed uh, you know tell me how did you both meet we met at uh, high school dances. Something was a place up here we called the Holy Family. They used to have, you know, just uh, weekend dan- dances, and um, that's where I met her. But also, she was a little bit of a tutor for me because I was uh, in school, still learning the language. And uh, as we met, you know, she was helping me with some subjects and things. Uh, and so that's how we be- got closer and closer. And was that a strategy to get closer, or did you actually need the tutor? Strategy, yeah, to to reel her in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Excellent stuff. Fifty-six years married. Fifty-six years plus, yes. Incredible, fantastic, really, yeah. really wonderful. I was blessed. Okay, so you've got this. You you describe it really well, actually. The, the kind of support system, and my wife as well. It's like 
there would be a cloud in your head. I think that's really pertinent because that's how I would think. If I had to deal with the things that my wife deals with, it would it just cloud my mind, make it misty and not allow me to have that laser type focus like I have, I suppose, that, that what you just described. When you look at becoming a father and growing a family, did any of becoming a father get in the way of your nerves or your um, courage, should we say, or your belief that you could go out there and be on the limit? Did ever did ever that happen to you? Actually not, because as you say, all along, I mean, she she took charge of that part. I knew, I knew that the, uh, everything was cared for. The kids, obviously, you know, they did all the normal things. I didn't perhaps, especially at the beginning, uh, when they were much younger, we didn't travel as much together. But um, uh, it's fairly early in my career, like in 1968, I was able to buy my first airplane. So by doing so, it really, really gave us so many possibilities of being together, going to, especially here in this country, to go all the races and then come back and and be back uh, in time for them to be in school on Monday morning and all of that. So uh, a lot of those things played huge for me. It was not a luxury. It was like almost a necessity, if you will. And it helped us a great deal. But, you know, it was interesting, however, that I have to tell you the story, that um, in school, my older son, Michael, he was about uh, seven years old, and the teacher was asking all of the kids, you know, what do you, what does your dad do and so forth. And, uh, and so comes to Michael and he says, well, my dad goes to the airport and makes bread. And uh, so she said, oh, you know, so, and the reason he was saying that because I was always, I always had a <laughs> suitcase next to me and leaving. And he would ask, he said, dad, where are you going? I said, well, Michael, I have to go to the airport and make the bread. <laughs> so, brilliant so he thought, was, he thought at that point that I was a baker <laughs> wonderful wonderful you have the ability to cross the pond as we say and be able to identify the pros and the cons of you know the Formula One versus the IndyCar and NASCAR and, and I suppose us guys in Europe, we probably don't look at the American motorsports in the same, you know, way and hold it up on such a high pedestal. And, and I also believe that that's the same in the States. They don't see Formula One in the same way that we see it. When you make comparisons, and let's take IndyCar and, and, and Formula One, what did you prefer doing? I know you probably had great experiences in both, but if you had to make a choice, what would you have chosen? That's interesting because uh, I have to go to the beginning. You know, I fell in love with the sport when, uh, you know, when I learned about Formula Formula One is what attracted me to the sport to begin with. When I came to the States, uh, I figured, well, Formula One, okay, is a, a distant situation for me. However, I have to start somewhere. And all along, during my career, even early on when I was going through, um, you know, the, the midget cars and all of that, I was still thinking about Formula One. There was uh, in 1963, there was only, there was one road race that they did with midgets in Lime Rock, Connecticut. And I was hell for bent, you know, to win that race. And I did. There was only one <laughs> road race that it was ever done that year. And so, and I was thinking at that point, I said, I'm Fonjo now, you know. 
And, uh, you know, so Formula One was in the back of my mind for sure. Did I enjoy, did I derive all the satisfactions possible from IndyCar? Absolutely, because it's such a versatile series, especially like in the year the 60s and like the 70s, where the championship of IndyCar consisted of super speedway, short ovals, road racing, street racing, and on the dirt tracks also all counted for the championship. You know that uh, even when I started Formula One, I would go like uh, from uh, Monza to Coin, Illinois on the dirt. I would be doing dirt track and Formula One, which had never happened before. There was never another driver that did that, you know, in that sense. I only brought uh, Bobby Unser one time with me so we could do some <laughs> some uh, slipstreaming in Monza. You know, so, and then we had to come back on a Saturday. We qualified Friday, Saturday to race in Indianapolis on a dirt track, not at the big track, you know, because it was for the championship and then go back. So, like I said, the diversity of, uh, of uh, IndyCar was something that attracted me greatly. But the technology and all of the, what Formula One offers also for me was, something that to be able to call my career complete, I had to have and I had to devote full time. At the very beginning uh, of my days in Formula One, you know, my first one was in 1968, my debut at uh, USGP with Colin Chapman, Lotus, and things, you know, it was very auspicious debut there, you know, started on pole and so forth. And, and I was offered uh, a full-time ra- uh, drive. But even financially in those days, I have to say it, I couldn't afford to do that because uh, in American racing, we were earning so much more. And I had to look at the stability of my family. Unfortunately, you know, in those days, uh, you know, it's not that I dwelled on it, but uh, I, I lost so many closest friends, you know, and, uh, and I was thinking, you know, if something happens to me, I have to be thinking that my family will be cared for, you know, for the rest of their lives. And that's, I mean, that was another aspect of my, what I felt was my responsibility. So because of that, it wasn't until the mid seventies that, uh, you know, <laughs> I was now coming at age, you know, 35. So I figured if it's going to be now or never where I, um, you know, would have to devote at least, uh, you know, at, whatever time it takes to Formula One to satisfy that aspect of it. And I had already won, you know, in Formula One, you know, with Ferrari in 71 and and, um, and so forth. So I had some decent experience. And then, um, again, the opportunity to join Lotus in 76 uh, was a total blessing, the way it all happened. Uh, and then, you know, it was Colin Chapman then was at, just at the point where he was very vigorous, you know, in his approach again, you know, just, uh, and, you know, like he's done for other drivers. He just uh, gave me the opportunity to win the world championship, which was, uh, again, for me, was the ultimate goal for sure. And when you look at all of those circuits over the years, and I've, I've been to nearly every circuit myself, and many of my friends in Formula One either work at Williams uh, or McLaren um, and Red Bull now. But um, when I go to all of those circuits around the world in the modern calendar, uh, I still look at places like Spa and Silverstone as the ones that excite me the most. 
as a spectator. Now, don't get me wrong, you can go to a place like Singapore and watch a race at night on the streets, but actually in terms of competitive racing, to me, it's harder to be competitive in those environments than it is to be on the bigger, more open tracks. What have been your favourite circuits to race on over the years? And when you've had either a victory or you've finished, or you've even done a, you know, you've even done a timed lap there and you've gone, whoa, that was fan- fantastic, that was phenomenal. Well, I just uh, I can say that, uh, for instance, you didn't mention it, but um, I'm so happy that I had the opportunity to race at the Nurburgring, for instance. Oh, you know, yes. the old Nurburgring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, we, because there was something pure about that, as you mentioned, even Spa today, still now they, all rules, they want to put all sorts of uh, you know runoffs and so on and so forth. You know, which it's great. It's great for safety, obviously. Uh, but uh, the aura of that challenge, you know, to really just push through and you know that if you miss it, it's going to be big. Some of that doesn't exist anymore because uh, of the runoff that you had, the luxury of running off that you have in many of the modern circuits, which is, again, uh, believe me, it's wonderful for the sport. I mean, uh, let's face it, today's racing drivers have the best chance ever to retire on their own terms which is an argument that, or something, a statement, I should say, that could not have been made, you know, just even 15 years, 10, 10, 15 years ago. You know, so that's a beautiful thing, and that's the future of the sport. But um, going back and, and looking at the, some of the uh, challenges that we were facing and how we dealt with it, we didn't dare dwell on as you can see some of these negatives that were that we were facing you had to just put that out of your mind and just go for it and again that's the way it was you either took that approach or you did you did not exist and um, would i love to be uh, young enough to be racing today absolutely at the same time would i want to give up what i've experienced um, you know early on in my life and how fortunate i've been really to miss so many dodge so many bullets and so forth no i, I would want to because i have i think i have a, a, such an appreciation for the sport in general today because i've you know experienced all of what we're talking about coming through the ranks in the 60s and 70s 80s you know, 90s and so forth. And that's, I always say, that's why I count my blessings, you know, because I've had those uh, experiences, those opportunities. When I was a kid, there was Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, each other's nemesis. A bit later on, we had Nigel and uh, Alan Prost as, as nemesis for each other. And I look at that rivalry when, when I was a kid, and, you know, I was English, so James Hunt was a legend to me, you know, he was, he was phenomenal as, as a kid, and Nicky Lauda was the baddie, you know, the Austrian. Did you ever have in any year or years racing someone that you didn't necessarily need to talk about, but just someone that got under your skin that just brought out an extra level from you? You know, it's interesting you're saying that, Spencer, because uh, there's always somebody that's better than you out there. And that's what elevates your game. And because, let's face it, you know, somebody has to set a standard at the time. There's always somebody that's better. You know, when, when I broke into, say, the first experience in Formula One, who was the guy? It was Jackie Stewart. He was current world champion and so on and so forth. So basically, that was a standard that you had to try to 
be better of if possible. When I broke into IndyCars, who was my nemesis was A.J. Foyt. Foyt was already five years my senior, already established champion. And uh, so, again, I remember one time we were in Duquoin, Illinois. I'm on the front row with A.J. Foyt at my very, my rookie season in a dirt track, which was, he was fabulous, dirt track racer. And uh, my chief mechanic says that to me, he says, just bring it home today. But if you think of, uh, of beating A.J. Foyt, it's just been, I mean, it's impossible. When he said that to me, it really irked me. You know, I really, it turned me on even more. I said, well, maybe not today, but it will happen. You know what I mean? It just somehow, it energizes you. Because of my physical size, sometimes they say, well, you know, you're not strong enough and all that. Well, I will show you. I'll show you that I am strong enough, you know, and that type of thing. So all of these elements, you know, if anything, they encourage you. They just give you some reason, you know, to just elevate your game, work harder and all that. Because my ambitions were always, uh, you know, just sometimes uh, even too ambitious, <laughs> you know, but... Uh, <laughs> But <laughs> but I always feel, you know, why not try to reach for the stars, you know, and uh, why not? <laughs> you know, so. When you think about all the successes, when you didn't win, there were obviously races you didn't win, and you didn't win fair and square, not because, you know, there was an oil leak or something, you just didn't win fair and square. Were you a gracious loser, or were you deep down a bad loser? Well... <sighs> I was never a gracious loser, you know, but I tried to hold it back, not to show it. You know. <laughs> then, no, is the answer to your question, Spencer. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes even my wife would say, uh, you know what, <laughs> just uh, grow up, man. <laughs> One thing I must say again about uh, Deanne was that um, – an element that, that was uh, uh, very, very important for me was the fact that uh, there was never this euphoria when I won, like, you know, ticker tape parade or everything, you know. It was always just even keel. And when I come back from a race, you know, I got the same hug, the same kiss, whether I won or not, whether I had a trophy or not. It was so important. And I see in some other situations where... Um, you know, they're so, oh, wow, he won, isn't that? Okay, what do you do next week when you don't win? You know, see what I mean? You put the chin in your socks. You know what I mean? There's an element of kind of keeping it steady a bit for the long pull, if you will. And I felt that uh, without knowing I had that in the element, in my family, in my, uh, you know, home environment, which was so important, quite honestly. But, uh, you know, going back to your question, was I a good loser? Hell no. You know? <laughs> okay. Well, you, you, I, I, I don't suppose it's – I don't even know where good loser comes from when you think about it, you know. Anybody that's in anything that's competitive where they want to win and, you know, winning is, you know, the only thing and winning matters more than anything else. You know, how can you walk away really deeply, honestly and be gracious, really? I'm sure you could be polite – but gracious inside of here, maybe not. Spencer, I, you know, I look back. Here's where I look back, you know, which uh, leads into what we're talking about. I put so much uh, weight on, on winning that sometimes I wish I could have, I could take back a couple of races. I used to 
force the situation sometimes more than I should. My patience was not really one of my virtues. And uh, quite honestly, I think it would work today more because of the reliability of the cars and so forth. So I was a little bit, uh, you know, uh, out of my time, if you will. Uh, there's, there's things that I would like to take back. But in the same breath, I didn't want to all of a sudden take any percentage off of my effort because I detested doing 99%. Honest to God, I just really det- I said, I have to look at myself in the mirror. Okay, I didn't win yesterday, but you know what? I was, I, my gut was out there. You know, I was just trying. I tried my level best. I didn't really surrender. That was really important for me, you know. So that was really basically my mindset, my makeup. Okay, a couple, couple more questions for you. In soccer, in football, when a player gets to the end of his career, he's been part of a team, a group of people for many years. He belongs, he's been respected, admired, he's had a certain level of success. And a lot of times you see when that career ends, the player goes into a depression in many respects. They don't know where they belong anymore. They don't know where they fit in. And there are some statistics that we have in the UK about lots of players, wealthy players, losing their money or blowing their money after they go into retirement because they've not managed that side of things properly as well. When you look at your career, even though you've jumped across different categories. When you finally stopped competing, was there anything empty in there? Did you feel a sense of of loss and not belonging or did that not happen to you at all? Well, it's interesting actually you're mentioning that because uh, the one thing that uh, I was fortunate enough uh, because again, I was just free of uh, terrible injury or anything that uh, could determine a lot of things. I was able to push the envelope as far as I dared, you know, I was in my mid fifties, you know, uh, when I decided to come out of the cockpit of, of uh, open wheel, you know, the single seaters. And it's a, it's a difficult situation because I, I love driving, you know, I just love driving a racing car to the last minute. But at the same time, I would look back at some of my peers who have overstayed and a couple, I will not mention the names, because of their love as well, I'm sure, but they overstayed and they were not competitive. And I didn't want to, I was so afraid uh, to have that as a memory of my career. And, and I think uh, I didn't even ask my wife her opinion when I finally made a decision the year before that I was going to, it was going to be my last year that I said, at the end of next year, I'm going to retire. And uh, she sort of took issue with that says, because she, she, she figured you're going to be so miserable. And I think that uh, you're probably going to have, you know, you could have had another couple of years. You know, that's the way she looked at me. But uh, at the same time, I have no regrets because I know that uh, I asked of the sport more than actually uh, I deserved from the standpoint of giving me that much longevity in my career. And quite honestly, the fact that my family, the kids, even on my brother's side, there was a continuation in the sport. I felt the family business continued, didn't just walk away. And I raced, uh, you know, Le Mans uh, three more times after that, which was, you know, it was fine. 
but also kept me close to the game and kept me sort of uh, uh, occupied, if you will, mindset-wise, just to see my sons continue and, and, and on and on. And it, it is there today. You know, we're still, I mean, our family is very much involved, you know, in the sport in, in, in so many different areas. And so that helped tremendously. Then, <laughs> then I started driving a two-seater car, which I still do. Actually, it's right there on my head. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> that's the car that uh, I still drive. And, and that, you know, it, it's it's good. I think uh, it, uh, it's good for me. It gives me a reason to stay physically fit also. But um, again, uh, I could not have asked one ounce more out of the sport than what it, give, it gave me. So did that ever depress me? No. No, no. Can you understand why it would with people that are high-profile sports personalities that their careers have to end in their mid-30s? Can you understand that, you know, the basketball players, the, you know, some of the racing drivers, the, the, the footballers, I mean, Tom Brady to one side because he's definitely an alien. But um, when you look at that, do you, I feel sad for people like that because their career is short, and they've lived a lot in a short period of time and they've belonged for so long into this environment. And then when it stops, it just, it must be tough, you know. Again, uh, I look back, I mean, a perfect example is uh, my, my oldest son, Michael, who came out of the cockpit, I think at the very top of his game, but he continued as a car owner. I mean, he had ideas of remaining in the sport, you know, for the duration of his basically professional life in a different form and he had to follow you know what his you know his desire where desire really was and maybe he wasn't enjoying the driving as much as I was for sure so we're all different and it has to be respected but just knowing how I feel I I think oh my goodness you know he came out of the cockpit such such came out of, you know, their profession where they're still at the top and they're happy. I don't know. Uh, I cannot quantify that. I cannot totally understand that. But you have to try and you have to respect it because we all look at things a different way. I cannot expect anybody to love driving a racing car as much as I do. And I challenge anyone on this planet that would enjoy driving a racing car more than I do or ever did. You know, we're, I'm on a screen looking at you on the other side of the world, and it's oozing out of you. It literally, it pours out of you as you talk. You, your passion for it, it just comes out of your pores as I talk there. to you. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. very real. It's very real to me. It's very vociferous. Yeah, just ahead. before we finish, let's have, a, let's have a chat about what's going on at the moment then, because we've got Mad Max and Lewis fighting for a <laughs> Formula One world champions. <laughs> Obviously, we, we, we see some circuits that neither of them have ever driven on before. We see Mexico as being a favorite for, uh, for Red Bull. We see a fight that's extremely close. We see a young kid that seems to be quite cool in his own clothing, if I'm honest with you. And then we have Lewis, who has been there many times before. How does it look to you? What's interesting about this season and what's interesting about as we go into the final stages? Well, Spencer, I think the interesting part right now is that... Um... It's unpredictable. You know, it's, uh, I, don't, I, I don't know anyone that could say any one of those two is a shoe in 
There's going to be a fight to the end, no question about it. And I'll say that um, Mad Max has been much more, I mean, has had much more bad luck in this respect of a couple of situations. But he's, he's not giving up. You know, you can see his fight is there 100%, you know, and that's a beautiful thing to see and to watch. And so on both sides, there is a resolve, no question about it. And they both have uh, the equipment and the team to be able to do it. I think uh, this stage, uh, if you look at it realistically, there's definitely uh, some edge, slight edge on the part of Lewis, you know, with Mercedes and so forth, looking at the tracks that uh, they're going to, they have a definitely tendency to favor, you know, the Mercedes. But nevertheless, uh, the fight is on and it's going to be a beauty, you know, quite honestly. So that's so great to see Formula One to have that. And we've had a wonderful season in that respect and so forth. And uh, that's what you're striving for. You know, that's what you as a fan like us, that's what you're looking for. And it's real. And then, then you have uh, the resurgence of, uh, of McLaren. You know, they're coming on. They're becoming real. Ferrari's fighting on, fighting on. And sooner or later, they're going to be a protagonist. No question about it. And uh, so, again, look at Williams, how it's always, all of a sudden, it's picking up some steam. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see now, you know, and looking forward even beyond this year, you know, with the new rules next year, new cars and everything else, and, and, this, and the cost caps and everything, there might be a little more of a level playing field. But the Formula One still maintains its uh, characteristic of, uh, you know, just having you know, their own team have to build their own cars, which is, to me, that's beautiful in that sense. You know, you see different engineers, different cars look different. They're within half a tenth of a second, you know, type of thing, you know, like in speed and so forth. So I, I love that beauty. I mean, that, that characteristic should always remain. Then on the other side, when you look at it, Indy cars is a spec series that gives any driver the opportunity to actually uh, bring in results. I mean, look at Roman Grosjean. He comes there and he can't believe it because he's in a Mercedes like everybody else. Everybody's yeah. in a Mercedes or everybody. <laughs> you see what I mean? So it gives any driver, if you know what, I have the same thing as this dude right next to me type of thing. You know, I may not, you know, have all of the setups, but, uh, but so it, it invigorates certain drivers in, in that sense. And then some of the purists would say, well, you know, it's a spec series. Well, it's a spec series, but it's really competitive. You know, so from the standpoint of a, a fan, you know, it's really interesting to watch. So, you know, there are different elements. Our sport has so much to offer, you know, on all angles. Uh, the sports prototypes now with a lot of the categories really becoming very interesting. It always has been, you know, but uh, we're at a good place uh, from the standpoint of the future. The talents that uh, are coming on, the talents both in Formula One, the young talents and IndyCar is re are really, really interesting. And uh, so I'm very, very excited and happy about that. One thing that makes me feel really good about motorsport is to see that throughout the coronavirus and the lockdowns around the world, Formula One still made and found a way to make it work and go racing. And for me, that is just phenomenal. That's how important the sport is to the world. 
that they went out and carried on racing. They were able to get permission to do so. But the football stadiums are empty, but they're out there and they're racing. And that meant for us fans, oh, it's so good. And to go to those new tracks as well, to go and see them in Portugal and then on the slippery Turkish circuit last yeah, year as well. Indeed. It was just yeah. so good. It was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. Mario, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. You have no idea how pleased and, and, and grateful I am for you to come and share some stories and spend some time with us. Ladies and gentlemen, give a massive round of applause for Mario Andretti! If you're listening to this episode of the podcast on iTunes, then please leave us a five-star rating. And if you're listening on any other podcast platform, please leave us some love. And if you engage with us, then more people will see this valuable content. And at the end of the day, that's the goal. Thank you for tuning in and I'll see you on the next episode. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.